Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where T is for The World Is Not Enough, the 1999 Bond film starring Piers Brosnan as 007. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we take a look at the story behind the 19th James Bond film, He's Always Got an Escape Plan, is Mr Brendan Duffy. Hello, I wish I'd escaped this episode. Oh, and joining us once again, he doesn't know any Doctor jokes, it's George Aldridge from the Cinema Savvy YouTube channel. Hello there. George, welcome back to the show. Um, when we were looking for guests to come on um, uh, in this stage of the podcast, you were very keen to do The World Is Not Enough. Uh, can you explain why that is um, and your, sort of your history with the film? Yeah, of course. It was the, the very first James Bond film I saw. Uh, and this is responsible for me becoming a fan, falling in love with Pierce Brosnan. Uh, and uh, the rest, I guess, is history as the years went by. So it holds a, a very special place in my heart. And uh, it, it's got some great memories back to when I was younger, whether it's the PlayStation game, playing with my dad on a Saturday morning, or, you know, just, just watching the film. And it's, it's one that's been interesting seeing the James Bond community speak about over the last couple of years as well. And you see, you were talking before you came on, but you saw it quite at quite a young age. Yeah, so I, I did some research, uh, aside from for, for the episode tonight, on my history with it. So the backstory is, is that I always remember watching it on TV. Uh, the younger generation might not know, but before Sky Plus and all that sort of stuff, you had to record with a VHS tape. And I remember being shown this film, The World Is Not Enough, uh, and it was on a VHS, and it, it began during the pre-title sequence after Bilbao so I never knew about that I thought that was something for the PlayStation game only that they'd done and uh, it always just began with the explosion at MI6 and a boat chase so um, that was my early memories with it and uh, I found out that it's UK broadcast because of course I didn't see it at the cinema I would have been three when it was out then it, it premiered on UK TV on the 14th of November 2001 which means I would have been five years old uh, when it was recorded for for us to watch when that was and I, I'm I'm still taken aback you know then one year later I went to watch Dine of Day at the cinema and uh, yeah I think what what the perfect age I think to to get into James Bond if I'm being honest is is that early two thousands I think for the Brosnan era absolutely I mean Brennan this must be sort of your golden era for for Bond yeah I was already in love with Pierce Brosnan at this point and I do remember being 
really impressed with the opening sequence, the boat chase, and then landing on the dome. I just thought that was so relevant. I would have been about 12, 13. So, yeah, very impressionable at that age. Yeah, and for me, I think this is the one I can remember of all of the of, of the ones I watched from the start, following the making of it before it actually came out. This is the one I can vividly remember, like reading interviews with Sophie Marceau, uh, seeing the newspapers with the stuff on the Thames, just being like, yeah, ha- following it and getting so excited for it. Um, so yeah, it's a it's an exciting one to talk about. Um, there is a lot to talk about uh, on this one, but let's kick off uh, with a synopsis. So. When Agent 007 is assigned to protect a beautiful oil heiress, he's catapulted into a passionate, adrenaline-charged adventure that pits him against one of his most deadly adversaries, Reynard, a ruthless anarchist whose total imperviousness to pain makes him a virtually unstoppable enemy. The unrelenting suspense, breathtaking action and sly wit never let up in this explosively entertaining thriller. Fairly accurate, but also slightly misleading there. I guess that's the MGM uh, <laughs> spoiler machine still uh, working there. But 1999 is not enough, but it is a perfect place to start, Brendan. Isn't it just one of the biggest things that people were talking about at this point? Any any guesses? What what was worrying people in, in 1999? Oh, was it the millennium bug? Yes, the Y2K <laughs> millennium bug, which was referring to the potential errors in computers at the time with their formatting people thought planes were going to drop out the sky as well you know it it really was sort of there was a lot of speculation of stuff that didn't end up happening really which is referenced in the film isn't it yeah there's a mention of it isn't yeah there? so obviously in 1999 we did have those millennium celebrations started at the end of the year and uh, they opened the dome in london which is now the o2 and the london eye which is on the thames but in terms of film there's a lot of lot of good stuff coming out in 1999. Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut, which of course he died five days after he finished filming it. The Matrix came out, Ooh. a revolutionary film. Yeah. Um, the Iron Giant, which is fantastic. South Park, I mean, I can't believe it's that long ago. <laughs> Still going. Um, the best picture winner at the Oscars was American Beauty, directed by... Sam Mendes. Sam Mendes, yes. Uh, other films that were released, The Green Mile, um, Tarzan, Fight Club, and Magnolia. Oh, it was a golden era, yeah. wasn't it? It really was, yeah. Uh, and we also had Columbia and MGM celebrating their 75th anniversaries in 1999. But the top three at the box office, any guesses? Phantom Menace. Correct, that's number one. Yep, $924 million. No, Matrix wasn't that big, was it? No. No. Uh, I have to give in. Don't know. So, number three, Toy Story 2. Oh, 511 yeah. million. And then number two, The Sixth Sense. With Ooh. 672 million. So many, you know, iconic films in that list, isn't there? It really was it really a big is. year. And, you know, it's, Bond's, Bond's got a, a lot to, to do to sort of break into that. Yeah, really I'm, does. Mm. I mean, The Phantom Menace is the first ever film I saw at the cinema, and I was three, so that's. I might not remember it being that year, but I did go multiple times, which is, it's it's very. I think the older we get, the scarier the anniversaries seem to to come for those kind of films, and I think it's starting to happen now with James Bond for me. I imagine at age three, you probably found the comedy a bit beneath you. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> not, not to go off tangent, but as a child, I didn't like Jar Jar Binks. 
So I understood why people disliked him. But as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate him. Which I think is like the, the anti, you know, that's not what the audience should be. Um, but I did want to be Anakin Skywalker, like everyone my age at that point in time, before, you know, it all went wrong in for him in two and three. In terms of the world is not enough, a lot of people talk about this one as being sort of, um, should we say, a, a spiritual sequel to the um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. There's a lot of homages in play, I think, in this one. Um, there's a lot of direct uh, sort of, um, you know, you've got snow scenes, you've got Bond falling in love. Um, it's when you listen to the audio commentary they do reference it a lot um but in terms of the the story and and the script george what what did you find out yeah so some may be familiar with the background to this but it's fascinating when you read upon more detail uh in november the 13th 1997 uh an episode of abc news nightline premiered uh, which was one month before tomorrow never dies was released in cinemas and this news report uh, detailed how the major oil companies were essentially all going to try and get control of the, the oil reserves in the Caspian Sea, of course, following on from the Soviet Union's collapse. And with Tomorrow Never Dies on, on its press tour, on its marketing tour, Barbara Broccoli was watching it on a flight after it had been recorded in December. And uh, after she watched it, she suggested that it would make an appropriate motivation for a Bond villain. Um, which she then took forward to Michael G. Wilson, and they agreed with that respect. And then came the process of bringing in some writers and uh, making their debut uh, in the Bond series, what of course was for Purvis and Wade, who were both brought on board. Um, the background to those two jumping on board was that uh, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Rocky liked their work on Let Him Have It and Plunkett and McLean. Uh, and after a meeting they had with them, they were also then shown the episode of Nightline that had inspired Barbara Broccoli to have this villain motivation. Um, and they essentially agreed with that. They loved the idea of having a dead villain. And when I say a dead villain, they genuinely wanted uh, a dead villain to be the Bond villain. Which like could... Weekend at Bernie's? Well, honestly, I'm not going to lie. Of everything I've researched, and there's some crazy stuff of this film, this is the one that's really thrown me off guard. Uh, the fact is that they didn't just get to write the film after that suggestion is that they wrote so many more. But they then compromised, uh, and the idea came forward to have Renard having a, a bullet lodged in his brain. Um, so that was the background to that. And a few more little tidbits. You mentioned on a Magic Secret Service. Uh, Purvis wanted a female villain for this, and Tracy was essentially his inspiration for Electra. Uh, very much the, the spoilt daughter of the very wealthy individual, uh, falling in love with Bond, and then, of course, it diverting into her becoming the, the main villain for the film, um, which I absolutely love the fact that they went back to that, and it really just showed that their knowledge of the, the James Bond series. And the first draft of the film was actually completed before Michael Apted came on board to direct. Um, following Michael Apted coming on board, uh, Dana Stevens, who I found out was his wife as well, came on board. She then wrote two drafts of the film across three weeks, which was very centrically focused on M and Electra. Um, and because it ended up with it being essentially an M versus Electra film, they then brought Bruce Fierstein on board to rewrite all of the scenes involving James Bond himself. And I've got a lovely quote from Mike Clapted from the making of the World of Enough book, who said, uh, We were very lucky. The boys did the start, Dana did the women, and Bruce did the bond. And that's how the script came to be. In terms of the director, we mentioned Michael Apted already. Um, 
but uh, before we get to Michael Apted, uh, the producers looked at uh, they they approached Martin Campbell to return. He had obviously done a really good job with Goldeneye. They wanted to see if he would come back and do it again. He declined. They also had serious discussions with Alfonso Cuaron to direct. Um, the Mexican director, um, obviously we know him now for like, you know, Gravity and uh, and what have you. Um, but at the time he had um, just moved into American filmmaking. He directed an episode of Fallen Angels and also a couple of feature films called A Little Princess and Great Expectations. So they got quite far down the line with him, but uh, Robert Wade recalled that Alfonso Cuaron didn't, uh, he felt he didn't quite understand the British idiom. And um, apparently uh, Cuaron had suggested that they move the boat chase from the Thames to the Hudson River. Um, So um, that was something they felt like it needs to be more British. And obviously, not so obviously, but coincidentally, Alfonso Cuaron does return to the series in Quantum of Solace as a cameo uh, voice uh, in that movie, doing the voice of a pilot. Other names that were linked include Joe Dante um, and Peter Jackson was also came close to directing. But legend has it that Barbara Broccoli was given a screener of The Frighteners to watch and she didn't like it, so she changed her mind. So there we have it. So then in the end, they turned to Michael Apted and he was hired in August 1998 best known at the time for directing dramas like The Coal Miner's Daughter and Gorillas in the Mist, and also his documentary series, Seven Up. Um, in an interview with IndieWire, Apted said, I just got a call from my agent saying, would I be interested in it? And I thought they were joking. They were seeing other directors. They didn't have this flash and say, Apted has to do Bond. So I went to see them about it, and it became very clear why they wanted a drama director, as opposed to an action director, to beef up the characters in the story. Once I could figure out why they wanted me, I knew I wouldn't just be hanging on trying to catch up. So then uh, he signed on um, and it was obviously a six month shoot. He'd never done anything that big before in his life. Um, And he did, uh, as a drama director, he did set some time aside for rehearsing the movie, but he later admitted that that was a total waste of time. He said in an interview with Den of Geek, it was completely ludicrous not to be remotely disrespectful disrespectful to Piers Brosnan but it was like now I'm jumping out of this now I'm fighting with this guy Um, and I did take the trouble to go through a couple of scenes we had with M and maybe a couple of the girls and stuff like that but it was a waste of time and slightly embarrassing but Brosnan is a good man so yeah so I mean I think he was hired um, to bring a sense of realism to the Bond films um, as obviously being a documentary filmmaker Um, and as you say, he's also very good at um, the women's roles in films as well. He, t- he t- I think he'd, a couple of his leading ladies had been nominated for Oscars. So that's why he brought in his wife, Dana Stevens, to work on the script. Um, but yeah, I mean, later on, he said, talking about it, uh, he said, the greatest social revolution of my lifetime has been the changing role of women in society. I've tried to avoid cliches. I've never allowed women to be ciphers or caricatures. I discovered it wasn't some great epiphany they'd had about offering me Bond. They just wanted to get more, more women in to see Bond films. So he thinks it was a bit of a um, um, a shameless attempt at making the women, the films appeal to women more, which is fair, I guess. Um, um, so, yeah, that's that was Michael Apted. And something interesting I learned about Michael Apted when I was watching the, um, the documentaries and listening to the audio commentary is that he shot the film slightly differently than he uh, other Bond directors had done before. He used multi-cameras, 
and I don't know if you're aware of this, but multi-cameras is often something they do on, on soaps and on TV, so they get more coverage out of scenes and they don't have to repeat scenes quite so often. So if one of the common um, complaints or criticisms of the, the world is not enough is that it is a bit soap-like. Well, that's because he shot it like a soap. So uh, there you have it. And then we've got the key crew. So cinematography is Adrian Biddle and editing is by Jim Clark. And Michael Apted actually said there were two key people who would help execute his vision. So he brought them on board. And the rest of them, it's pretty much, you know, picking some some Bond veterans. David Arnold is back to do the music. We've got Peter Lamont. Now, he'd just worked on Titanic and got them the Oscar win. And so he he was returning. And at this point, I found this astonishing because I just hadn't thought about it, but he had been production designing for Bond longer than Ken Adam at this point. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, we think as Ken Adam was doing such a really long stint, but Peter Lamont at this point has now done done longer in the Bond franchise and Michael G. Wilson said the first thing we do when we start working on the script and we're thinking about locations and whether we can do this or that is we call up Peter Lamont so by this point he really had become a huge part of of how they want Bond to look and and you know using all his expertise um also we get uh Vic Armstrong he's back to direct second unit and help Michael Apted with action sequences, so with the uh, boat chase, uh, the ski sequence, and the helicopter attack, he's he's all on hand to help with that. So yeah, it's it's a mixture. We've got a couple of new new people brought on board by Apted, but on the whole, you've got a, the classics, people who know Bond, all the classics. Yeah, excellent. And uh, alongside some returning key crew, we've also got some cast members, of course, Piers Brosnan his third appearance as Bond and we've got a, a fair few of the MI6 team to talk about Judy Dench returns as M of course this film more than ever probably focuses on M I guess you could argue until Skyfall comes along uh, Michael Kitchen returns as Tanner so he wasn't in Tomorrow Never Dies this was obviously following on from Goldeneye Colin Salmon also returns as Charles Robinson following on uh, from Tomorrow Never Dies and Samantha Bond as Miss Moneypenny in her third appearance and uh, one of the, the, the major returns is of course Desmond Llewellyn in his what would be his final appearance as Q. Um, of course, uh, I know there's been an episode on Q, so there'll be a lot more information with that, but this was his final film, uh, and he passed away on December the 19th, just after the film came out in a car accident whilst he was on the way to a book signing. Um, of course, the only actor to have worked with the first five James Bond actors, and uh, I just had a quick look into some of the tributes that came after he passed away, obviously with it being between this and Dine of a Day, and uh, Roger Moore led the tribute as memorial service. They played all the time in the world uh, alongside this. And his son went on to say that Roger Moore was the bond that worked with him the most. So it was Roger Moore that was chosen to come to the memorial. And a few of the Bond alumni that spoke was of the legendary Sir Christopher Lee. And Samantha Bond was also there. But uh, another great name who returned was uh, Robbie Coltrane as Valentin Sikowski, um, who tragically lost uh, a quite a short while ago this is of course his second appearance and Brosnan paid tribute to him earlier this year with a, a lovely line saying I, I cannot think of a finer actor and man of humanity and humor to share the world stage with on such a day that as many so years ago my sincere condolences prayers love and respect to the family and just a little bit on Tchaikovsky from me what I found out is a lot of the lines he uses in this film were unused lines from Goldeneye 
Um, mm. You know, we know those James Bond archives do go back many years, but it's one of the, the first times I've seen some uh, incredible one-liners. Uh, and uh, Robbie Coltrane is one of those actors that, you know, for many generations, he'll also be Hagrid. But I think his time as Zakowski is, is so fiercely underrated because he has such a magnificent presence in his two films in the very short amount of screen time you get to spend with him. Yeah, he's a great he's a great uh, presence, isn't he? Because I think he's one of those where he's not a clear-cut villain, not a clear-cut ally, hero. He's just a great character that pops up. You know, he's like a Gogol type um, character who, who who just has makes such an impression on screen. But obviously, Desmond Llewellyn, I mean what end end of an era and and these the scenes that they shot for him they couldn't have picked better scenes to shoot really could they it's incredible how they managed to like not knowing what would happen and how things would pan out that that end scene you know add with so much more added context to it and it makes it way more emotional yeah, I think it really does as well when I was younger I'd never realized that he wasn't not meant to come back as Q and, and I think that's obviously when you get older and you read about what happened that was one of the biggest surprises for me that it almost in the sort of horriblest way that it worked in their favour if you were looking at it from that perspective and uh, it's you know of course introducing R who we'll speak about very shortly as well it's it's a fascinating way for him to go and I think you know I believe that there was inspiration from uh, King Arthur and Merlin the old stories of him sort of descending down as they said their farewell uh, which was also in some of the behind the scenes when they planned that final scene with them. Interesting. Right, so uh, onto the Bond girls and the new cast. So, uh, as I said, Mike, Michael Apted was brought in to beef up the female roles in this, and he really did sort of go to town here. It's got one of the best sort of um, lineup of, of female characters uh, in any Bond film. Um, he was interviewed by the Daily by the ta- Daily Telegraph before the film was being made um, while he was promoting a documentary at the Sheffield Film Festival. And they obviously asked him about the Bond girls in his film. Um, And he said, to which I replied that women were at the heart of the film and I wanted to make the women more interesting. We probably spoke for three minutes out of the 30-minute interview on that. The next day, he was flying to Istanbul to scout locations and they showed him this page in the Daily Telegraph, which was filled with pictures of Bond girls and the headline, no more bikinis. And he said, and the quotes have been basically taken completely out of context. Uh, they said, forget bikinis, women now have to be brainy and all that sort of stuff. And they called him a boring, grey-haired, liberal intellectual who's going to wreck Bond. He said it was all very jolly, but when the studio got, the studio got extremely jumpy because about it and asked me what on earth I was doing, it was pretty tricky because I'd put my foot in it. So, I mean, you can see, you know, the tabloid rumours around um, Bond like have been going on forever it's not um it's not a new thing nowadays it's uh, it's been going on since the films began but i will talk about the bond girls in sort of a descending order so um the sort of the the one with the least screen time is is cigar girl and that's maria grazia cucinotta and she's the one who sort of um, makes sure bond escapes from the banks at the start and then she's then sent to take out bond in the Thames chase sequence. She was known at the time for starring in the film Il Postino and she had screen tested to play Electra, but because her English wasn't up to scratch and she really wanted to be in the movie, they offered her the role of Cigar Girl. So that's, uh, yeah, Maria Grazia Cucinotta. Uh, Serena Scott Thomas plays Dr. Molly Warmflash. Uh, now, Serena had made her film debut in the Purvis and Wade film Let Him Have It. And she is, of course, the younger sister of Kristen Scott Thomas. Um, she'd also recently played 
Princess Diana in the adaptation of Andrew Morton's book, Diana, Her True Story. Uh, but Molly Warmflash, I mean, what a ridiculous name, isn't it? <laughs> um, she was very um, uh, complimentary about Pierce Brosnan. She called him a sweetie, says he's really fun. He doesn't have any of that ridiculous macho thing. He's normal, which maybe you shouldn't be being James Bond. Then we have Denise Richards as Dr. Christmas Jones. Um, United Artists had insisted that there be a second female lead um, and that they should be an American to appeal to audiences there as they felt Electra was just too far removed from what people expect from an archetypal Bond girl. She'd originally be written as a Polynesian girl who works as an insurance um, person for Lloyd's um, Bank. And the name they took from, um, actually from their uh, previous film, uh, Let Him Have It, there was a, a character in that called Christmas Humphreys. So they took that uh, name and used it again and made Christmas Jones. But in the early drafts, she was like a paperwork person, not an action girl. But when the treatment came back from, from UA, they said that they had to change it from an insurance investigator because Pierce Brosnan was going to star in the Thomas Crown Affair and the lead in that was an insurance investigator. So that's when the twist became that she was a nuclear expert. And so Denise Richards at the time was was a huge star, really. She's She was really famous for Melrose Place, Loaded Weapons, Starship Troopers, Wild Things. And there was some backlash at the time of her being cast. I think a lot of people just saw her as a sort of a Hollywood bimbo, um, which is a bit unfair. And then talking about her casting at the time, she said, I did my audition on Thanksgiving with Piers and Michael was there directing. I was quite young at the time. And once I got the role, I felt like Michael took me under his wing. Uh, Michael wanted Christmas Jones to put Bond in his place. She wasn't just the trophy Bond girl. That was her job. She took it seriously. He wanted her to be able to one up Bond. Bond had met his match. So there's that. And then we've finally got Sophie Marceau as Electra. A lot of people were tested to play Electra, including Vera Farmiga and also Sharon Stone. But Michael Apted had his heart set on Sophie Marceau after he'd seen her in uh, a film called Firelight. And also she was in Braveheart as well. And she was screen tested using the torture scene uh, in uh, this film. So they used that one because it's a big meaty sort of acting role rather than being, you know, the the woman in bed role from uh, from Russia with Love. Um, talking about it she said you don't have to play the villain because the villain doesn't think she's a villain she thinks she's defending a cause a Bond film is a fantasy something that is totally abstract in a way I don't have to be conscious about being the villain because the film is conscious about it it's a relief when the actor doesn't have to tell the story but just be the character so that's the Bond girls okay so villains we have I'll, I'll start with the Less, the, the the screen time that's a good it's a good way of doing it so we'll go with John Saru who is uh, an actor from Fiji and also a wrestler and he plays Gabor Gabor is the bodyguard to Electric King then we have Ulrich Thompson and he is Sasha Davidov and that's Electric King's head of security in Azerbaijan but one of one of the most memorable ha- has got to be the musician and DJ Goldie. As as Mr. Bullion. <laughs> what a great name. Watching it now, it's weird to see him pop up in it, isn't it? Yeah, it really um, is, yeah. Can I but confess it's, something? It, I didn't know he was a musician until literally a year ago when my dad told me when we were watching it. Oh, really? I just assumed that he was a James Bond, like just villain that had... He's got gold teeth as well, hasn't he? And it, I was told life, that yeah. he, he was a musician. Is it from Bristol? Yeah, a very famous German bass DJ. Yeah. 
it completely blew my mind, honestly. Um, I, d- I don't know, don't know if that makes me sound terrible or not, but um, yeah, that that's uh, that's incredible. Uh, as you find that as I've got order. And then for the main villain, um, who is the international terrorist, he's the kidnapper uh, of Electra, um, Reynard. Now Reynard was originally been going to be played by Javier Bardem. We talked about that in um, what episode? In our episode. Ah, oh, that's it. Yeah. But of course, he he said his English wasn't up to scratch at this point, so that's that's the main reason he didn't take it. Um, also, Jean Reno, he turned the role down due to personal reasons at the time. So eventually, they they went for Robert Carlyle, who's a Scottish actor, and um, at the time he was best known for his roles in Train Spotting and The Full Monty. Michael G. Wilson saw him uh, portraying a character who was a psychopath in an episode of Cracker. And so thought he would be would be perfect for a villain role. And Robert Carlyle actually he said that he told an actor friend that he was thinking of doing it, and uh, and then was introduced to a Bosnian actor called Velibor Topic, who basically told him all about different military stories and the horrors of war, and so he used that as his base base to to play the character. During the actual production, he was given an OBE. And uh, the Queen said, what are you doing at the moment? And he just told her that he'd spent the whole day trying to kill James Bond. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, uh, that's Reynard, who is very good at holding hot rocks. What, <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on Reynard? I really like him. I think he's, uh, I think he's good. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the same. I don't... He's one of those characters where I think as a kid, I was never scared by him, but I certainly enjoyed him more when I was younger in terms of an actual villain. I think as I've got older, I understand where a lot more people are coming from. And I think the more I've seen from Robert Carlyle, I feel that I don't want to say the word wasted. I'm, I'm glad he wasn't a Bond film as a villain. But I feel that, you know, he, I mean, he could have just made, I mean, he would just been an angry Scotsman. It would have been incredible. But uh, mm. it, it's a really tough one with him. I don't know this. The hot rock, it just makes me laugh now each time I see it because that's all we really get to see. And I think it's an incredible concept that just maybe doesn't have the the end product to to match what I think what they set up with him. Absolutely. They, I don't think they push that at all. You know, the whole concept that he's getting stronger and stronger and more invincible as as it goes on. It does not they do not use that. Yeah. But yeah. I will say I think he does commit to the role, right? He, I think he brings an intensity yeah. to it. I have no uh, problem with Robert Carlyle himself. No. It's yeah. the problem is with the character and the script. Yeah. Yeah. And uh in regards to some new alloys with so many returning ones, the only one I was able to, to source as a new ally is John Cleese in the role of R. Of course, would go on to play Q uh, in Dying of a Day and everything or nothing if we want to include the games. Um, but it came to be with his ex-wife, Alice Cleese, uh, was friends with the producers, which was able to, to snag him a role in there. Now, I've been struggling to find interviews of him before being in James Bond. Uh, everything post James Bond is John Cleese being John Cleese. If I'm being absolutely honest, um, <laughs> so I've struggled to get anything pre the world is not enough, which is a shame because I think with a legend of British comedy contextually in the late '90s to replace Desmond Llewellyn when the time comes, I think it was a great idea, and it might also be a character that, due to an era ending, we never got to see that come to fruition properly. To and you might be. This is 007. If you're Q, does that make him R? Ah, yes, the legendary 007 wit. I 
least half of it. Now, I dare say, 007, that you've met your match with this machine. Yeah, new model, improved specs. I thought you were on the inactive roster, some kind of injury. Yes, well, we'll see about that, so. As I was saying, the very latest in intercepts and countermeasures, titanium armor, a multitasking heads-up display, and six beverage cup holders. All in all, rather stocked. Right, on to production. So let's kick off uh, with the pre-title sequence. So production begins on The World Is Not Enough on the 11th of January 1999 at Pinewood. Um, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about Pinewood in a second. But the pre-title sequence at 14 minutes 20 seconds, uh, it's the longest Bond pre-title sequence of the series up to date until No Time To Die came along and blew that out of the water uh, with 24 minutes. So mid-February, the main unit travelled to Bilbao in Spain to shoot the first half of the pre-title sequence near the Guggenheim Museum, where Bond escapes from the office. Um, Brosnan does part of that stunt first, and then it, uh, it's the stuntman, Mark Mottram. Uh, they chose the Guggenheim because of it looking so sp- spectacular, but the, the sort of the tale is that when they got there, they couldn't get it to shine on screen because the weather wasn't right, so they had to add that in afterwards. Um, but, I mean... One thing to note about the Bill Bow shoot is that Brosnan and the shoot was absolutely besieged by fans who turned up to watch them doing it. They said, I think I read a report that was 100,000 people turned up to watch them shooting, which is wow. absolutely unbelievable. It was basically like the height of Bond mania all over again. And, and Brosnan called it gobstoppingly wonderful. They all just gathered outside his hotel waiting to catch a glimpse of him as he came and went. So, uh, yeah, amazing scenes, really. And then... There were issues at the time with shooting in Turkey and Kazakhstan. So Spain had to double for uh, several different places as well. So while they were there, they shot in a place uh, in Bardenas Real, which is near Tudela. And that doubled for the Caucasus Mountains, which is the exterior entrance to the nuclear facility. So all that stuff outside the nuclear facility is actually in Spain. And there's a bit where um, you see uh, Bond and Christmas Jones escaping from the mine and it explodes. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a really good, good sequence, actually. And um, basically the guy doubling for Bond, Mark Mottram, he had a fireproof suit on. But the lady doubling for Christmas Jones, Joe McLaren, didn't. She was basically wearing shorts and a T-shirt. So when they exploded, you see Mark actually has to jump between joe and the explosion to protect her from the flames it's quite an amazing uh, amazing detail when you watch it back they also filmed at a place called los calajones which doubled for the turkish village uh, which has the church and the villagers that were protesting outside the pipeline and there is a little bit of a myth just bringing it back to the pre-title sequence that the pre-title sequence is originally due to end when bond jumped out the window in bilbao and that test audiences thought it needed more and so they moved the 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 credits to after the Thames sequence but that's actually not true if you dig into it which uh, MI6 did they looked at the scripts and they found that the pre-title always ended with Bond's encounter with Cigar Girl on the on the Thames Uh, although the original plan was for Bond to be flying in a jetpack rather than in a boat Um, so that was always the plan and so this myth about about the the pre-title sequence being extended I don't know where that comes from, um, but perhaps they might have toyed with it at one point in an early early version of the film. But um, it definitely wasn't the plan originally. 
Um, but the truth was that basically the bond, se- the, the boat sequence ended up getting made loads longer than it should have been, uh, more complex because of Vic Armstrong basically going to town on it. So when they uh, uh, decided on the Thames, they they committed to that uh, full uh, full heartedly. Yeah, basically they did that over a six week shoot on the Thames. They worked closely with the London Film Commission, uh, who took them on a tour of the Thames. Uh, and he ended his tour by showing them the foundations for what would be the Millennium Dome. And Michael Apted was just like, well, we've got to shoot on that. And that's how that came together. But there were lots and lots of obstacles they had to overcome to shoot on the Thames. The, the, the Thames has a speed limit of 8 to 10 knots. Um, but the shoot required speeds of up to 40 knots. Uh, and MPs at the time, they complained and they were concerned about having jet boats on the Thames outside um, the Houses of Parliament. But uh, Jack Straw, who was Foreign Secretary at the time, he told them all just to lump it because it was a huge advertising campaign for England and London. Um, and, and so that basically secured them the rights to be able to do it. They had to build a model for uh, the, the, the part where the, the hole is blown in the Riverside Wall. That was done in the model by John Richardson because they couldn't do that on the Thames itself. And and the bond the, the boats itself, Cigar Girl drives a 42-foot Sunseeker while Bond has this Q-boat and there were 15 custom-built Q-boat shells that were made by a company called Riddle Marine of Idaho. Uh, They were shipped to the UK and then detailed by the guys at Pinewood. Um, Four of the boats were functioning and operational and they had these massive V8 engines Um, and incidentally one of the boats, one of the Q-boats, sold at the 60 Years of Bond auction for £126,000. So that's crazy. Um, there is a point where the chase goes off the water at one point and then goes through the streets and that was filmed at Wapping um, and the boat stunts um, were, uh, some of the boat stunts were filmed in Millwall Dock, under the Glengall Bridge um, and the Isle of Dogs and then a place called Chatham Dockyard was also used for part of the boat chase. Um, one of my favourite pieces of trivia though is the parking wardens who get splashed. Uh, one of those was a guy called Ray Brown who at the time was famous for being in a 1998 reality show called The Clampers. So that's a uh, a little cameo that's sort of lost to the uh, details of time. Mm-hmm. But obviously the most dangerous part of the stunt sequence was the 360 degree barrel roll. And that was devised by Simon Crane and Gary Powell and looks absolutely sensational on screen. No slide whistle needed for that one. <laughs> Um, and then and then famously, Brosnan himself was on location to do a lot of the shooting there as well. And you can see him in detail, uh, in close up, doing a lot of the stunts. And he was the guy that came up with the idea of straightening the tie when he goes underwater as well. So uh, lovely little detail there. But one of the most memorable pre-title sequences, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. And and a great use of the, the dome. I thought that's inspired mm. to, to see that and go, yeah, let's use that. Because it it made it feel more modern than it actually was because it wasn't even open yet. Yeah. And just a little fun fact I remembered about the dome, the bit where Bond is falling, tumbling down the um, the, the, the roof of it. There's a bit where he gets uh, trying to grab a hold of the cables um, and, and he falls past it. That was actually an accident on set. They were trying to get the stuntman to grab the cables, but he kept missing it, kept missing it. And what they did is just loop them together so it made it look more dramatic, which I thought mm. was a lovely bit of filmmaking. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those scenes that, as time has gone by, is that O2. Well, it became the O2. It's become such a, a massive venue now. Would you argue that's helped age this film in a really good way? That because it's still so current, the O2. When people come back to the world, it's not enough. It's very much. Oh, we all recognise this building, uh, and, mm-hmm. and I think it's done wonders choosing it to be set there. 
Absolutely, Absolutely. yeah. Earlier on in the year, when they had, uh, you know, we had those winds and a hole got ripped in the roof. Yeah. Yes. Most of, you know, people thought about that, that moment, you know. Yeah. I don't think any, has any other film shot on top of it? I don't think so. Probably not. It was almost a risk at the time because there was, I remember when it was being built that they thought it was going to be a temporary structure. Yeah, one year. It wasn't going to last, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's worked out quite well. Coffee, medium sweet. Two, medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? So off to Scotland, sort of, via Stowe School in Buckinghamshire, which acts as the site of the King estate where the funeral is. That is playing the part of uh, Loch Lomond. But uh, it's it's a school, yeah, a school in Buckinghamshire, which is actually seen in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade as well. Really? There is a deleted scene as well uh, that was shot there after his injury on the dome. He's driving to the funeral, um, but Miss Moneypenny is driving the Aston Martin. And uh, Samantha Bond said, I've got Mr. Brosnan sat next to me in this quarter of a million pound car. He's sitting beside me saying, faster Bond, speed it up. It's not a girl's car at all. It's very, very heavy. There was no point to the scene. It was just fun. And that confused me when I read it because I was like, faster Bond. But of course, Samantha Bond. But they did actually get to film in Scotland, much to Judy Dench's delight, because obviously she gets a much bigger role in this. So it meant she got out on location and got to shoot in Scotland and then later on in Turkey. So they went to the uh, Eileen Donan Castle, which uh, was used to uh, portray MI6, the, their temporary operation base, Castle Thane, which is located it's near the Isle of Skye, which is in West Scotland. And it's the same castle used in Highlander. Wow. And uh, following there, we, of course, had the ski chase uh, that was filmed in February 1999 at the French ski resort uh, Chamonix. Apologies for any French French pronunciations butchered there. Um, this was led by the Armstrong of the second unit, and it was scheduled in for four weeks. However, there was a tragic accident on the 9th of February where an avalanche hit the ski resorts um, which unfortunately resulted in 12 people dying alongside 14 buildings being destroyed and 20 cabins um the health and safety helicopters of course used for filming and the crew was then diverted to of course help out with the ski resort to try and, and, and save who they could um it wasn't i wasn't able to find the the dates filming resumed so it was of course delayed shooting there um and to my surprise I don't know if this is insensitive or not to then have an avalanche in the film um, is a very awkward thing that I thought about when doing this research um, but there's any sort of uh, light bearing uh, the mayor of, of Chamonix was sentenced to three months in prison for second degree murder due to the resort not having um, any um, adequacies or preparations uh, for any potential avalanches which you know is, is horrible when you read into it and uh yeah, so not the easiest of shoots and 
history that comes from that. Um, but of course, filming did eventually finish there. And the the Parahawks themselves, one of my favourite actual Bond designs, um, they used paratroopers. Uh, United States paratroopers were then trained into the vehicles. At the start, they were too heavy for them to use, uh, but they were trained on them in America, and then they eventually brought them all over into to France to do the filming on location, which I thought was a, 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 a great little touch. And of course, further on, a Magic Secret Service um, comparisons were made with um, how they fell off the side of the building. Uh, they believed it's done in sync with how the skiers were, and there was a reference to one of the, I believe, stunt designers who almost passed away on, on the Honor Majesty's filming, uh, and they replicate that the Powerhawks, which I don't know how. I don't know if that's meant to be a sign of respect that, oh, you almost died, let's just reenact this with a, a villain's vehicle, but... um. That's uh, an Easter egg for someone who really wants that to be done as an Easter egg. So, um, yes, that was filming uh, in France. So a, a bit of a random one here, but um, there is a UK location in the movie, which is sort of almost a blink, blink and you'll miss it, a very unlikely location. And it was the Motorola building in Swindon, which was used to double for the external of the oil refinery. And this was found by Peter Lamont when he was away in his own words, for a bridge weekend, which I think is card playing. Um, so this building uh, is quite unique. It was opened by a queen in 1998 and it was designed um, as a major manufacturing facility. But when you look at it, pictures of it, it's like a big silvery building and it's got this huge like tubular pipe that runs across the top of it. I don't know why it was designed like that. Um, but it was aluminium and glass. It was massive. It, it had um, housed 1,300 staff. Uh, and had 28,000 square metres of manufacturing space and 4,500 square metres of offices. It was massive. And they had this huge, like I said, this pipe that runs across the top of the building, um, which was 5.5 metre diameter, big enough to drive a car through. And they spotted it. They thought it would work well to double for this building. And they, they got permission to do it. So here's Brosnan uh, filmed on location there with Sophie Marceau uh, in 1999. Um, and uh, according to a local newspaper report at the time, uh, Piers Brosnan stayed at the Chiseldon House Hotel and was in, seen enjoying a pint of Arkles 3B at the nearby Plough Inn. So, fun little fun fact for you there. Uh, but unfortunately, Motorola moved out of the building in 2010 and it was dismantled. Um, and there was some of the pipeline, um, exterior pipeline is actually a real location in Wales as well, which I imagine a splinter unit went off and shot there. So, uh, yeah, that's the uh, pipeline. Uh, and then in Turkey, uh, the Maiden's Tower, which is a, a lighthouse built in the 11th century. It's at the mouth of the Bosphorus in Istanbul. That was used for Renard's hideout in Turkey and... Um, you can actually see it in the background of From Russia With Love as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, it was actually restored in 1998 specifically for for this, so they could shoot there. Um, and then it was a year later, it was, even, it was restored again as a, a precaution to an earthquake that happened in 1999. Um, now it can be visited as a cafe, it's a restaurant, and you can get a boat trip there. You know, to go and visit the tower. Um, we had exteriors for Electra's Baku Villa. They were shot at uh, a pavilion in Istanbul, but the interiors were actually shot at uh, in Luton in Bedfordshire. 
A Luton Who, wasn't it? Luton Who, yeah. Yeah. And uh, alongside Luton, uh, they did return back to Pinewood, which we know James Bond's history with the filming studios. And uh, it was the first James Bond film to be filmed there since The Living Daylights in 1987, which, for those unfamiliar, uh, of course, you detailed it in The License to Kill and Goldline and Tomorrow Never Dies episodes, uh, with most of License to Kill being filmed in on location in Mexico, Goldeneye, of course, it is what is now Warner Brothers Leaves Done, and Tomorrow Never Dies as well. So, most of it was for the studio work. However, I was able to get some details on some of the larger sets. So, they used the 007 stage to shoot the nuclear facility. Uh, of course, the finale takes place, which is, I think, a pretty underrated set. Uh, I know we don't get much time of it as it's submerging, um, but it's very spy who loved me i've always felt i don't know it's because we get them you know in the naval officer uniform as well but alongside this uh one of my favorite sets a very weird one from this is um the caviar factory uh from zakovsky and this was filmed at the outdoor water tank at pyramid for those wondering why was there an outdoor water tank well of course they they build the factory on top of it which uh makes for some great practical action set pieces and uh I mean, I'm not gonna. Lie, I've never had caviar, so I don't know if it's liquidized or how it's made. So that's one of my questions. I always thought it was oil for many years, um, but see, knowing that that was shot at the outdoor water tank of Pine, it's pretty cool. But yeah, it was the the first Bond film back, which you know you think twelve years is a long time, but for the for the series that's famous for filming there, that you know three films away is is massive. I thought. Well, crucially, I mean, it's the first time Brosnan's got to film there, isn't it? So um, I imagine, imagine it must have been a big, big uh, moment for him to start shooting Bond at Pinewood. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when um, uh, Bro- Brosnan meets Connery at um, Pinewood. So I think we covered this story on our Brosnan episode, Brendan, mm-hmm. if you remember. Yeah. But he said, I think he was loading, putting his bags in the boot of his car and he heard a distinctive voice and it was Connery. And I think he sort of said something about make sure they're paying you well enough or something like that. Connery, uh, always bringing it back to the wages. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course, of course. But I think there are some stunning sets in this. I think, like you mentioned, the the, the submarine, I think, is is great. And that was one of those sets that they put on uh, like a movable gimbal type thing to, to rotate it and fill it up with water and stuff. And it is stunning work. Is it because there's an underwhelming fight in the submarine? That's my issue, that you've got this incredible set as if the angled set it's so uh, not to harp on Renard again because it's nothing to do with Robert Carlyle but even the way in which is dispatched with you know the the reverse mm. shooting through I feel there's just that slightly wasted potential because of course with Peter Lamont returning doing post Titanic what did he get up to after that you know then let's destroy a submarine for James Bond as well so uh, it's it's great to see him back and in, in that stage being utilised Right, uh, let's look at post-production. Um, so, The World Is Not Enough obviously takes its title from the Ian Fleming book on a Majesty's Secret Service, where Orbis non sufficit is revealed to be Bond's family motto by the Royal College of Arms. Um, and the Orbis non sufficit is the actual motto of the real-life Sir Thomas Bond, who was a landowner who was made a baronet by King Charles II in 1658, and it's this Sir Thomas Bond that Bond Street itself is named after. Mm. And Ian Fleming made James Bond his sort of fictional ancestor in the books. Um, but the ph- phrase itself, Orbis non sufficit, 
And it's thought to originate um, from something called the Pharsalia by Lucan, uh, where it appears twice. Um, and the first is um, in reference to a group of villainous mutineers. And the second is in reference to Julius Caesar. But the, the the use that we think of it as this Orbis non sufficit comes as, as a reference to Alexander the Great, where uh, the, the full quote is, a tomb now suffices for him for whom the world was not enough. So there you have it. And this motto as well was also previously used by Philip II of Spain. I could have given you the world. Huh. The world is not enough. Foolish sentiment. Family motto. Um, but other titles that were considered for the film uh, were, they looked at uh, Fleming chapter titles, uh, one of them being A Whisper of Love, A Whisper of Hate. What do you think of that one? Uh, no, no, no. The no. song no, the song would be bad as well. No, bad, <laughs> bad, yeah. Would be good for marketing tie-in for Whisper Chocolate Bars. But um, <laughs> um, Another one they looked at was Death Waits for No Man. It's too long. Well, which you can sort of see, uh, yeah, them using sometime down the line. Uh, Fire and Ice, which sounds a bit like a Roger Moore film. <laughs> or a nightclub. Or a nightclub. Or Game of Thrones. Had yeah. a Song of Fire and Ice started at that point as well, by the way? Oh, good I feel question. the books had started then. It's still not finished, though. But so uh... Probably, probably. <laughs> Another one that looked at was Pressure Point, which sounds like a Bond continuation novel, if, uh, if yeah. you ask me. Yeah. And then Dangerously Yours, which I quite like. Um yeah, and that's another the best rumor. one. Yeah. Huh? That's the best one of these, yeah. these ones, yeah. And then another rumour was it was going to be called Bond 2000 because everyone was obsessed with Bond uh, 2000 at the time. But uh, Awful. I can't, can't imagine that would have ever been... How, how That would have dated that so badly. Yeah. Could you imagine if they'd made a genuinely contextual James Bond Y2K film for, to come out in 1999? <laughs> how, how awful it could have aged, you know? Yeah. At least in no times, like, it's not their fault. You know, they shot the film about you know deadly virus before that did come real um mm. but the the y2k stuff scares me a bit knowing that they could have you know had a bad day and, and done that yeah yeah but um, we got the world is not enough and i think it's a classic title yeah, yeah. we see it on screen in a, on a majesty's secret service don't we yeah yes and there's been a um a, a bit of a, not behind the scenes but the 007 store renowned for its uh, affordable pricing <laughs> they released some merchandise under the, I don't even know if seen it on the news today at the time recording, but they've done a James Bond coat of armor logo. Uh, of course, the world is not being the family coat of arms. Uh, turns out they were using the Blofeld one, not the James Bond one. What? And, uh, oh, they've had dear. to recorrect their own merchandise now to say Blofeld's family motto, which is uh, quite embarrassing. Oh dear! Brilliant. So on to the music, and we have David Arnold's second score. So the music he'd made for Tomorrow Never Dies was, you know, highly regarded. And so they asked him to come back. Um, and he said there is an element of repetition because it's the same person writing about the same character. You need to find a different way of orchestrating it. So he said that he actually took much of his inspiration from Electra King. And he said that gives the score a bittersweet sound and he uses the um 
the manipulation of the character, her invul- uh, vulnerability, her innocence, revenge, seduction. They're themes that David Arnold really used throughout his score to make it completely different to Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, he said to write something beautiful and honest was very interesting to me, especially for a Bond movie. And he also had the task of composing the title song. Yes, so The World Is Not Enough, sung by Garbage, written by David Arnold. And in his fifth um, Bond theme, we have Don Black returning as well. For those unfamiliar with his other ones, we have Thunderball, Diamonds of Forever, The Man of the Golden Gun, and Surrender from Tomorrow Never Dies, which should have been the, the main theme for that. This was quite a fascinating one to read into. So this is a, a story of two halves. So we have Garbage, who at the time were on a world tour. Um, it was their second world tour and they were trying to get a recording date in for this and couldn't. So they were recording it throughout their tour at different destinations. And then they eventually went to Armory Studios in Canada in August of 99 to complete and edit the final version, which feels very close to a deadline, uh, given that the writing for this song began you know, with the, the, the pre-production of the film that David Arnold wanted to write this as early as possible. Barbara Broccoli wanted this song to be done as early as they could. Um and of course, it would then release later that year. But in a in a wild turn of events, I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with this. Um, Eon MGM, Universal Music, and Universal Studios were sued by two songwriters, Frank P. Fogerty and Nathan Crow, for copyright infringement for the "World Is Not Enough" theme. They claim that the four note sequence used was identical to a song they submitted to MGM called "The Game We Play." a song that was not used for the second time we bring up this film tonight, The Thomas Crown Affair, mm. um, which I thought was very interesting. This would go on for five years, and this was resolved in 2004 when a US court rejected the claim after going through evidence from all parties, including David Arnold, Barbara Broccoli, the Don Black, um, everybody involved garbage. They went through their files, they went through their diaries, their notes, their history, to conclude that, it, it was not stolen. It was more of a coincidence, and they conceded. And uh, some of the behind-the-scenes of these two guys trying to take this to court, they um, were pretending to be employees of James Horner, um, who then used that to get through to Don Black and were recording conversations with him talking about writing the song. And they tried to get through to Shirley Mason, who was, of course, the lead singer from The World Is Not Enough, but didn't get through to her. Um, one of the more wild stories from the behind-the-scenes, but the song itself... One of my favourites. It was sung earlier this year, of course, at the the Sound of Bond concert, which you can stream not enough of it, but half of it on Amazon Prime. And it debuted at number 11 in the United Kingdom on our charts, which, uh, you know, it's not surprising. But what are your thoughts on that song? I'm I'm a big fan. I like it. For me, I think it's up there. Yeah. 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 I mean, I should have said at the start, I'm sorry, but... um, of course, it was written from the perspective of Electric King, who, you know, at the time in a in a pre-spoiler zone, it's the, the writings on the, well, not not a pun to that song, but the writings on the wall <laughs> in the sense of, you know, we can see that we can read that this is the you know the, the villains thing and kind of a a, a more of a, a statement than I guess a question is that had this have come out in sort of two thousand and twenty one, fight like no time to die, I think the over analytical marketing for films people would have probably worked that out in that respect to this film but i love the fact it's one of those great things that you can look back on how many years after and think oh the themes the point of view from the villain and the point the villain isn't renard of course female voice as well with michelle mason so 
I absolutely love this theme and it's one that's grown on me so much over the years and uh, uh, I had a bit of beef with Spotify because they'd removed it for like 11 months and then he brought it back just before the concert in October so my playlist was incomplete for, for a year. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget as well. I mean, when you look at it in the in the canon, garbage seems a bit of an unusual choice, but they were absolutely massive at the time. Yeah. They were just a huge, huge act, and um, I think they really, I think they really knocked it out of the park. I think it's one of the one of the best of the of the modern era theme songs. It's it's timeless, I think, and I think that it helps. You know that David Arnold, Don Black. Um, they were all able to work on it where, you know, they'd had issues with uh, Tomorrow Never Dies and studio interference. With this, they got what they wanted um, and, and delivered, I think, a classic thing. We, we've said it all along when we got together in Garbage, you know, if we, if we had a dream, it would be to record the Bond theme just because of, the sensibility is, is quite similar to how we approach making music. The world is but, and it also helps that the titles... Uh, I think, personally, Daniel Kleinman's titles for this are some of the best he's ever done. Um, he worked, uh, so he, he he's back having done Golden Eye and then Tomorrow Never Dies. And so this is his third one in a row. And he worked with the digital effects studio Smoke and Mirrors for this. And he's, his motif for this one, which I think is one of the strongest, is that oil motif that runs through it. And he worked very closely with David Arnold um, to make sure that he was in sync with what he was planning for the uh, for the title song. And David Arnold said he sent him the demo for the, the theme song the, literally the day after he submitted it to Michael and Barbara so that uh, Daniel Kleinman could start work on it. Uh, talking about it, Daniel Kleinman said, Very thin coats of oil and petrol on puddles give you an amazing reflection of colour, refraction of colour. In the studio, I photographed petrol on the surface of water and then used that footage to wrap around images of worlds and planets. I felt sorry for these poor girls. We poured fake oil all over them as I wanted the oil to define the shapes of the models. And he said that it's probably one of the more effects-driven sequences. It maybe felt a bit overproduced, almost too digital. Uh, but I disagree. I think it's uh, I think it's one of his best. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think I it's love another, it. another classic. I'm not a big fan of the Tomorrow Never Dies one. I know a lot of people very much enjoy it with you know the whole microchips, but for them to take the oil into account and, and the way I see it is as we move into this, you know, not to do a Y2K pun, but as we move into the more digital era, it's amazing to see some of the what they were capable of doing in the 90s for these films. Uh, and I certainly think Tomorrow Never Dies and this is that real leap forward into, you know, obviously I'd say the, the absolute high of Casino Royale in 2006, but um, I think... The main thing is that it matches the theme and the actual film itself. It's time to release the film. Um, so you mentioned he did a, a screening, a private screening. In August 1999, yeah, Michael Apted, he screened The World Is Not Enough. Um, and he said, staggeringly, we previewed the film five weeks after we finished shooting poor old jim clark eh <laughs> so uh and jim clark himself he said the reaction was quite underwhelming he said although there were no walkouts we felt a distinct hostility so that give that gave them you know until november to rectify any issues that people had you know raised uh 8th november 1999 the world is not enough gets its premiere in la 
and then in, uh, it gets a European charity premiere on the 22nd of November at the Odeon in Leicester Square. Now, reception at the time was mixed. And we have Roger Ebert, who we always reference on this. Um, he said it was a splendid comic thriller, exciting and graceful, endlessly inventive. And he gave it three and a half stars out of four. Mm. Yeah. The Atlanta Journal disliked it and they said it was dated and confused. Uh, the AV Club said that there's enough fun moments that are scattered throughout to make a decent Bond entry, but the series still needs a massive shot of fresh ideas. The Independent said it, uh, the film is certainly less definitively feeble than other Bond offerings, with at least two, with at least a two-dimensional female character in the bold and oval Marceau. But my reaction is much to the same as the new Rolling Stones album. I'm just grateful that it's not embarrassing. Some of the main criticisms were of Denise Richards um, and Variety said that she was the least plausible nuclear physicist in the history of movies. <laughs> and she was actually ranked as one of the worst Bond girls of all time by Entertainment Weekly in 2008. But in contrast, Sophie Marceau, she was praised for her portrayal of Electra, um, and The Guardian called her terrific, sexy, stylish, with a really beautiful face, entirely innocent of the cosmetic surgeon's art. So, you know, retrospectively, this was in 2012, so, yeah, 13 years after, Variety said that it presents a conflicted persona torn between the corny antics of the Roger Moore era and the grim seriousness of where things would eventually go under Daniel Craig's tenure. It also contains a dose of Timothy Dalton-esque toughness, much of what made Brosnan such a great Bond is thrust into the backseat by lame jokes and the premature attempt to mix up the formula. Uh, An Entertainment Weekly actually said in 2006 it's the worst Bond film of all, of all time. It said Ooh. it's so convoluted, even Pierce Brosnan has admitted to being mystified. Um, and IGN in 2007 chose it as the fifth worst Bond. In terms of the box office, though, it was $361 million and it actually made more than Goldeneye. Rosnan himself at the time was uh, satisfied. He said, we came out the gate with Goldeneye and now looking back, it seems like it was just I was just a baby then. My assuredness with the role and my confidence has grown a lot. And quite frankly, I couldn't have expected anything less of myself. And I think the same could be said of Connery. If you look at him in Dr. No in 1962 and then his third time in Goldfinger, there was a whole mystique about the third Bond when the actor really gets into his stride. This, of course, was the end of his Bond contract. It was just a three-film contract that he originally signed. But Michael G. Wilson said, if he's game for another, well, then we certainly are. It's certainly in all of our minds at the moment. And then in May 2000, I think we've talked about this, but MGM and Dan Jack took out a two-page advertisement in Screen International and they congratulated Pierce Brosnan and calling him our billion-dollar Bond. And that was a reference to the combined box office gross that they had taken for the three of his Bond uh, films to this date. In terms of awards, so Brosnan actually won the Empire Award and Blockbuster Entertainment Award as Best, Act Best Actor. David Arnold won a BMI Film Music Award for his score. And this one actually became the first in the series to win a Golden Raspberry. 
Any Ooh. guesses for what category? <laughs> Christmas Denise Jones. Jones. It is Christmas Jones as worst supporting actress at the 99 Razzie Awards. They were also, Richards and Pierce Brosnan were also nominated for worst screen couple. Uh, but they didn't win that one. They lost out to Will Smith and Kevin Klein in Wild Wild West. So uh, <laughs> they didn't get that one. So, yeah, there you go. Not many awards to be proud of anyway. <laughs> right. Let's have a look then. Let's open it up to what our followers on Twitter think of the movie before we have a good chat about uh, the, the, the film itself. So our three world reviews, we put these out on, on our Twitter account and you guys respond in your droves. Um, and a lot of responses for this one. So uh, let's let's go straight into them. Jackson Flickinger said inspiring but flawed. Jack McMorrow goes with Desmond Bows Out. Space Odds 1985 plot hold dreariness. Ooh, it's harsh. Jukebox Jim goes with fantastic pre-title. I think we can agree on that. Jesper Ling, weird pain face. <laughs> Come on. Uh, Nikolai, a friend of the show, he says, kinky torture chair. Brosnan's best performance, which is interesting. Mm. And fantastic femme fatale. Uh, Andy, he went for my favourite Bond. So this is Andy's favourite Bond. Electra is amazing. Brosnan is best. Brendan, did you, is, it, is that you? <laughs> Luke, half monk, half hitman, says most Fleming Brosnan. And, oh, this is a bit of a tenuous one, but underappreciated character exploration. And also Skyfall Part 1, which is interesting. Something mm. we can talk about in a second. Uh, Neil Lee training. Says Bond betters Begbie and awful <laughs> festive pun. People are going for loads now. Chris kind of sort of believes, I don't know what that uh, Twitter handle is in reference to, but he says top tier pre-title sequence, top tier brother. Oh, and this echoes something that you said earlier, Brendan. Neil, Tr- Neil Lee also says waste of Carlisle. Um, hmm. Deepak calls it top 10 Bond. And then finally, Robert Nance, better than Skyfall. So wow. have it. That is a hot take. Yeah. So a lot of Skyfall references there. What's that in What's that in reference to, do you think? Um, probably yes. getting character development, I, th- I feel. Yeah, I think that's definitely what it's, what it's, what it's, um, that, where that comparison comes from. Obviously written by the same people, right? Yeah. Purvis and yeah. Wade. Um, so I think you find, yeah, they sort of tend to have a, a habit of recycling a lot of their ideas. And so, yeah, I can see that uh, that sort of connection to Skyfall in a way. And also, you know, they're in a remote place in Scotland as well, uh, the MI6 people. So um, you can uh, you can sort of see that as well. But, but, I mean, Brendan, let's start with you. I mean, you're the big Brosnan fan. Where, where does this stand? How, what do you think of this movie now? How does it rank for you? In terms of Brosnan, it's his, it's his worst. And... It's just so. Was it somebody said called it dreary, mm. and that I do tend to agree with that. There's there's a there is a lot of dreariness in it. A lot of it looks washed out. It's not that exciting to watch. I don't think. Yeah, I I, I just and in terms of Bond, it doesn't feel like a Bond film a lot of the time. I think that might be my problem with it. It's great that they give Brosnan's Bond this time to sort of add to his character and give him more depth but I just don't think it it delivers I don't think it's got the other ingredients the bond ingredients that we always talk of I just don't think it's got enough of them 
to to make it something that I would watch you know, if I had the choice. Yeah. What about you, George? I'm I'm kind of on the uh, not an opposite path, but for me, this is comfortably my second favorite of his four. I think performance-wise, the three-word review from earlier, uh, Brosnan's best performance, I would agree with that. One thing I'll notice is that I got to see this earlier this year for the 60th anniversary screenings at the cinemas. I only went for the Brosnan ones, not to make a statement. I just <laughs> there's it's, Fair play to anyone that did, did any of them every week. That's incredible. But um, I was so excited to see this on the big screen, and the action scenes were incredible. But when it wasn't action, there was just something off. Enough to tonight, obviously, of course, with the the cameras, how it was shot like a soap opera. That's kind of lingered with me a bit. So I definitely agree that there are a lot of flaws with this film. But I think what I love about it, which is... And it kind of pairs with Tomorrow Never Dies for me, is this... I think the story itself is decades ahead. That you know, the, the happy coincidence of Barbara Broccoli seeing that Newsnight report, you know, of the oil stuff, without getting into the sort of sport things, but... You know, oligarchs is buying football clubs. It happens today in the certainly mid noughties Raymond Abramovich is probably the most famous example of that. And seeing the power individuals can have with with what oil gets you, I think as I've got older and gone back to this film, I, th- I see the plot. I think you know what it it's a very well you know it it's not just a make the maniac for the sake of being a make the maniac. It's there's a goal with what Electra King is working towards and. Robert King as well. I love the whole dynamic that, in her theory, you know, her dad took her mother's, her mother's empire essentially. So, there's a lot of things I like in there, but I definitely understand why it's one that's not as high up on other people's lists. You know, it's it's not one I would throw on. You know, if someone says, you know, pick a Bond film to watch tonight, obviously I'll go with Goldeneye. I'd probably for Brosnan then go with Dying of a Day if I'm being honest, because I think there's unbelievable amounts of fun in there. And so, you know, from a social dynamic, watching people would be great. But the world is not—it's not tricky for me because I'm also massively biased because it's the first Bond film I got to watch. So I will defend it for the sake of that. I had a great PS One game that came with it. But yeah, it, it's a really interesting one for me that I feel over the course of the last year or two that I have seen a lot more people speaking up and not—I I hate the term defending the film—but I think certainly. Bond as a fan base is more open to discussions on what works for some and doesn't for others and having dignified conversations and like some other fandoms and it's really interesting hearing everyone else's thoughts on the world is not enough because you know some of those polls that we listed you know mid mid to late noughties putting it right at the bottom to me it's absolutely not not near that bottom of the pile I think there's a lot worse um, but it is really interesting seeing how different people will have those sort of different reactions to it yeah I mean for me I I've got to agree with you, Brendan. I think it, I think it's probably probably his worst. I mean, for me, I, I really struggle with the middle two Brosnan films. I, Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough. I really, really love Brosnan as Bond. I can't mm-hmm. stress that enough. I love Brosnan as Bond. But the two films in the middle, I just find them a bit of a slog to get through. And this one, there are, like you say, there are a lot of things to to appreciate in it a lot of things to like in i know it has people out there who absolutely love this and and classic is one of the best bond films i just can't get on board with that i'm afraid um i uh, some of the things i will say that are in terms of like the female roles in the film yes i think they've done a good step in the right direction in this film compared to what we have had in the past specifically electric king they've given her a complex role they've cast an actor who could is actually interesting and isn't just there as eye candy she i think she does a good job in the role 
And then M obviously gets a much more beefed up role. But then on the flip side, you've got Christmas Jones, who's just one of the most nonsensical characters ever committed to film. Yeah. And that's no disrespect to Denise Richards. I actually think she puts in a good effort for what she's given. But it's all costume for her. And really, she doesn't get much else to, to, to be done. Um, and then I think other things I like about it. I like the music in the film. I think the music's really well done by David Arnold. Um, uh, like I said, I like the titles. I think some of the stunts are pretty good as well. The the snow stuff looks really nice on camera. Um, but there's just such a uh, disparity between the stunt stuff and then the drama stuff. And when you come, when it comes to the drama, it's it's almost melodrama in this. And I think that sort of hints at where Barbara and Michael were hoping the franchise could go. Obviously, we got to step backwards with Dying of the Day. But I think it's sort of you see the seeds of what becomes the Daniel Craig era in this movie in that everything's overwrought. Um, and unfortunately, I just think Michael Apted wasn't the right guy to, to turn it round. I think I, can't, I think you count it. There's like three or, is it three or four occasions where someone just gets slapped around the face mm-hmm. uh, out of anger. And that in itself is a soap opera right yeah. trope isn't it it doesn't belong in bond no um and so for that for for all those different reasons um i find it hard to uh like you say it's never top of the pile to watch for me it's it's um but when you look at all the creatives involved as we always do with the bond films there's so much good stuff in there you can't dismiss it completely there is worse bond films out there for me but um this is not near the top of the pile at all sadly no. And the other frustrating thing is, is like that quote that Brosnan says, you know, by the third Bond film, look at Connery, Goldfinger, look at Moore, The Spy Who Loved Me, and look at Daniel Craig, Skyfall, and we get this as Pierce Brosnan's third film. It's it just, it's so frustrating what could have been, because he's right, at this point, he is confident, he's assured, he's playing a Bond, he knows he can play Bond, and he knows he can play it well, and he just doesn't get the script that he deserves. Do you both think the two-year gaps, you know, it's a very controversial take these days, but do you think the two-year gaps actually damaged Bond, that this idea came straight after Tomorrow Never Dies, she's on a flight after promoting it, and it's, you know, oh, we've got a pre-production, you know, really going on the next one already, and there are, there are instances like this, right, I love the concept of the oil stuff, but the two-year gaps, I think, as you as you evolve into modern filmmaking and certainly the late 90s heading into noughties you know digital era has really spiked that up it's a lot harder and films i think should be project by project having that bit of patience in the middle not too long you know like some of the ridiculous gaps we've had but i definitely feel that the 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 bookend shelf for the brosnan is that those middle two films i think he even joked about himself he never knows which way around well there's not enough and tomorrow never dies are and i think because you start with Goldeneye, you end with Dying of a Day. They're the two talking points for everyone about Brosnan's Bond, and they get lost in the middle, I feel, especially the general audience. Yeah, I definitely think that it is an issue. They had a huge success in 1995 with Goldeneye, and on that, obviously, you know, they'd panicked whether it would ever be a thing again. So, of course, they're going to green light tomorrow and never die straight away. But had they given it time to breathe and used Goldeneye as that platform, a bit more patience, who knows where it would have gone. You know, we could have we could have had an amazing Bond film. Yeah, I think the issue here as well is this sort of a, but they, they they hadn't had, or they had had in the earlier Bond films is that they didn't have the continuity of the writer who knew exactly what was going on. You know, Richard Maybaum had written pretty much all of those first Bond films, 
but now they're in a position where they're sort of flitting between Bruce Fierstein, Michael France, um, who the other guy was on, on GoldenEye. And then on this one, they've got, um, you know, on, on Tomorrow Never Dies, they dealt with loads of different writers to try and tackle that story. I just think they were having a, a sort of a, um, a crisis of identity. Um, and that was obviously clear with GoldenEye. They didn't know what Bond could be, what they wanted Bond to be. They managed to strike it lucky there. And then they were just basically stumbling through um, the rest of the Brosnan's era, which is a real shame, really. What they mm. needed is is a, is is a good writing team that would do the whole era for them. I think Bruce Fierstein might have been the guy for them, but unfortunately, um, they were shopping around a lot, and um, it just didn't, just never came together for them. Mm. Brendan, if you had to say something nice about the film, what do you like about it? I still love the pre-title sequence. I know, I know it's ridiculous, and I know it's long, but that boat chase, you know, it's an incredible piece of filmmaking as well and uh george i mean obviously you're you've been very um positive about it anyway but um i just wanted to ask you quickly before you go just about the video game yeah what was that like i never played that one all i can ever remember is the the terrible voice actor that's not Piers brosnan and the opening <laughs> scene he screams renard really it's not Piers brosnan sorry it's whoever's meant to be the the the, the banker um, but the actual video game, I remember it being amazing. You had to play poker, which, you know, I was f- like five. I didn't know how to play poker, so Dad would do those levels with me. Um, I remember it being a great game. I actually played it last year. Um, I got the PS1 out when we were going through the films one by one. Played it, and uh, it's still not bad, you know? Uh, and I think <laughs> this is where you know, the, the Brosnan era is beautiful for video games in the sense that, you know, we had you know bond films that were games that were original you know in the early noughties and some of the adaptations i thought were great and this film in particular is so well suited to videos you get this here's an opening at a bank of an explosion here's a pre-title sequence here's a chase here's the the snow levels it really lended itself to an actual video game uh now it's no golden i don't get me wrong but i i have some very fond memories of this and uh it, it is it is an interesting one very good George, what can you tell us about Cinema Savvy? What are you guys up to at the moment? So we've just uh, finished our two big series. Uh, we ran a Steven Spielberg retrospective that covered pretty much all of 2022. Uh, and many thanks to people joining us on there. The time yourself, of course, submitted a top 10. So if you're a fan of Steven Spielberg, you can uh, check out that series, which is on demand. We're just planning at the moment for 2023. It's a, it's a pretty big year there's some big films coming out there's some franchises there's some directors we want to have a look at it's a bit quiet we've had our busy period but uh for any bond fans that are curious uh we did a lot of stuff to mark the 60th anniversary early this year including a uh, an insane ranking video on uh what we believe the 60 greatest james bond moments are so if you want to check out some bond stuff you can definitely find that on our youtube channel but if you want some film reviews news discussions then uh Give us a follow, hit the subscribe button, and there might be some uh, some interesting stuff coming up. There is a spy franchise coming out next year, not James Bond, unfortunately, but we will, of course, be covering that alongside a few other things. Do you mean Mission Impossible? 100%, yeah, I, I can't wait. Listen, you can say Mission Impossible can... on it. It's not, uh, it's, not a, it's not a curse word on a button pop there. It's, it's fine. <laughs> Any chance I can get to talk about Tom Cruise, you know, I mean, Tom, you know me, but now I will, and uh, a few more of his films I won't go and miss, and... Uh, I can't wait for the Bond comparisons every week when that starts in June. But, you know, there will be a James Cameron retrospective starting in January of next year. Uh, we'll go through all of his films 
leading up to Titanic as that gets its beautiful 4K remaster, having Avatar 2 coming out this December. So James Cameron on the warpath, Denny Villeneuve at the end of next year, and a few other things in between. Very nice. Right, Brendan, uh, we will be back next week talking about Thunderball. Um, but in the meantime, if people want to get hold of us, how do they find us on social media? At James Bond A to Z on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, and uh, if people want to email the show, you can get us at podcast at jamesbond a to z um, And so, on that note, just want to say thank you, George from Cinema Savvy, uh, and just to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Ciao. Bye. James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. You're not retiring anytime soon, are you? Now, pay attention, 007. I've always tried to teach you two things. First, never let them see you bleed. And the second? Always have an escape plan.